Welcome to the Communique podcast. The objectives of the Communiques are to develop, produce and distribute electronic educational publications that encourage clinical practice to change for the benefits of patients, residents, health and aged care services and the whole community. Over half of our subscribers attribute a change in their clinical practice due to the Communique. The print versions in these podcasts present cases of premature and preventable deaths that occur in health and aged care settings. We explore three areas. What happened? Why did it happen? And what action can we take to prevent it from happening again? The cases are the accounts from the completed medico-legal death investigation of the coroner's court and our team of senior medical and nursing practitioner present this coronial information in a manner and format that is familiar to clinicians. Our three publications are the Clinical Communique, focusing on acute care, the Future Leaders Communique, designed for recent health graduates, and the Residential Aged Care Communique, which examines deaths in aged care or nursing homes. The online print versions are available at our website, thecommuniques.com, which also includes the resources recommended for each edition. Welcome to this podcast based on our May 2020 edition of the Residential Aged Care Communique. I'm Professor Joseph Ibrahim, the Editor-in-Chief of that edition. This podcast focuses on the COVID-19 pandemic in aged care home. This podcast begins with an editorial. We then examine the potential lessons that could be learned by reviewing COVID-19 outbreaks in aged care homes. We have formulated a wide range of questions to ask facility managers who have managed such an outbreak. That section is followed by a brief update of the international experiences in long-term care and deaths from COVID-19. The next two sections include an examination of factors that may contribute to a residential aged care service being a high-risk setting for COVID-19 outbreaks and why more than the standard techniques are required for prevention of infection. We then revisit past editions of the residential aged care communiques that are relevant to the COVID-19 pandemic. We selected four editions to look at in detail. The first is about the interface with other services, particularly acute health. The second is around managing responsive behaviours in persons with dementia. The third is about communication, a skill that is challenging to master. And the fourth and final issue that we reflect on is on guardianship, highlighting the need to understand identifying and working with a resident's legally appointed decision maker. The podcast concludes with four debate article where we present options for the clinical settings in which to manage residents infected with COVID-19. Consider now, where would you choose? Stay at the care home or go to an acute hospital? Let's now listen to the editorial. Welcome to the May edition of the Residential Aged Care Communique. We are all experiencing a new and very different way of life. In this issue, we again address the COVID-19 pandemic and the issues facing aged care homes. As we prepared for this podcast, around Australia, 
we are aware of 23 residential aged care services that have had at least one staff or resident infected with COVID-19, a total of 66 residents affected and 29 deaths. There were two major outbreaks in Sydney and perhaps another in Rockhampton. In contrast, we know that the United States of America, the United Kingdom and Canada, three countries we often compare ourselves to, have massive levels of community infection and tens of thousands of deaths of aged care residents. As a country, we should be proud that Australia has one of the lowest rates of infection and deaths around the world. This is probably a major reason for such few outbreaks in our residential aged care services. The statistics in brief are, Australia has a population of approximately 25 million people, with 210,000 aged care residents dwelling in 2,717 facilities. Our lived experience with COVID-19 in mid-May 2020 is 6,972 cases in total, 99 deaths and 23 facilities affected. This equates to a community transmission rate of 0.027% and facility rate of 0.85%. These very low numbers create a cognitive framing bias. That is, we underestimate the true scale of the problem because the percentages look so insignificant. Another way to truly comprehend the significance of this pandemic for residential aged care services is to do a different type of comparison. We will look at only two more statistics, the proportion of deaths and the infection rate of facilities. Deaths of aged care residents account for 27.5% of all deaths from COVID-19 in Australia, which is similar to what has been seen internationally. The second figure is the number of facilities with at least one COVID-19 infection relative to the community transmission rate. This is a somewhat artificial and unsophisticated way to view the pandemic, but it provides another way of exploring the relationship between what happens in the community and what the flow-on effect may be in a residential aged care service. What we see is the rate of a residential aged care service facility with at least one COVID-19 case is approximately 30-fold greater, that is 0.85% divided by 0.027%. This is a very rubbery back-of-the-envelope calculation, so don't take this literally. What it highlights is we need a better understanding of the relationship between community infection rates and the potential impact on residential aged care service residents and staff. The question we need to answer to is if the community infection rate doubles, what does that mean for outbreaks in residential aged care services? This requires experts in mathematical and statistical modelling to determine how to compare individuals, clusters and service types. This type of information would also assist in formulating a risk management strategy around visitors to residential aged care services. What is not contestable is that if COVID-19 gets into a residential aged care service, the consequences are potentially devastating to the residents, family and community. 
Let's now listen to the section that reviews and examines a COVID-19 outbreak to see what we could learn to apply more broadly. The section is titled, Lessons Could Be Learned by Reviewing COVID-19 Outbreaks. We are not aware of any official publicly available reports examining what caused the outbreaks and how these were managed at Dorothy Henderson Lodge and Newmarch. Both residential aged care services are located in Sydney, New South Wales, and had outbreaks of COVID-19, causing deaths of residents that made national media headlines. Rather than rely on media reports, we have presented key questions we would like to ask. If answered, they would assist other residential aged care services to be better prepared in the future. The fundamental questions we want answered whenever anything goes wrong are taken from the VA National Centre for Patient Safety Root Cause Analysis Tools. The questions are, one, what happened? Two, why did it happen? Three, what action can we take to prevent it from happening again? And four, how will we know if the action we took made a difference? There are multiple categories to be examined, and we have added some general notes in each. Please note what we have presented is not comprehensive, but a way to examine the issues systematically. We look at policy and procedures, safeguards in place, the environment, equipment, information technology, fatigue and scheduling, training, and communication. Number one, policy and procedures. Did the Residential Aged Care Service have an active outbreak policy and procedure in place? How useful were these when the outbreak actually happened? Was this developed with the local acute care hospital and ambulance service? If so, did that help? Why or why not? Number two, safeguards. How was the outbreak recognised? Was there any delay in recognition of cases because of a low index of suspicion? How are staff and visitors screened on entry? How liberal or strict was the residential aged care services approach to people visiting residents in the facility? Were residents being screened for COVID-19? If so, how? Was this effective? Number three, environment. We know from the publicly available accreditation audit reports that Newmarch has 25% more residents than the Dorothy Henderson Lodge. It also has more high care residents and a secure area for care of persons with dementia. Dorothy Henderson Lodge has a balcony for every resident and cluster style housing. It would be valuable to understand whether these factors played a role in transmission of COVID-19 infection and how it assisted or hampered efforts to contain the outbreak. Was it possible to isolate residents with COVID-19 effectively in their own rooms? How was this done? Were there any issues with residents exercising their right of tenure? Number four, equipment. Was there enough personal protective equipment before and during the outbreak? Were there adequate supplies of other items? for example, alcohol-based hand sanitizer, 
and biomedical equipment to screen and monitor residents, such as thermometers and oximeters. What was the access and availability to laboratory testing for COVID-19? On a practical level for everyday personal care, were there enough shower commodes, hoists and slings for transfers? How was the risk of cross-contamination managed? Number five, information technology. Access and functionality of information technology would impact on facilities' ability to promote and manage virtual contact visits for residents and family. It would also be critical in real-time communication with staff and other personnel involved in outbreak planning and management. Did staff have ready access to IT systems while wearing personal protective equipment? How was the hardware, that is the computer terminals and workstations, kept clean and free of contamination? How was it possible for new and casual staff to gain rapid access to the IT systems? Was the IT system integrated with the general practice or acute hospital systems? If not, would it have been helpful to have these interfaces? If an electronic medicine prescribing system was in place, what was the outbreak impact on prescribing, dispensing, and administration of medication? Number six, fatigue and scheduling. Did care staff work while symptomatic? Why? Was it due to not having enough staff or was it an issue with access to testing or training and communication? Who led coordinating the response to managing the outbreak? How did that team function? How did the rapid response team get activated? What did they do? What was the access to medical care? Was it sufficient? Did the residential aged care service draw on their regular general practitioners, the acute hospital, or other sources? Why? Number seven, training. Were staff adequately familiar with and able to adhere to personal protective equipment recommendations? How was this achieved? Were sufficient staff available to manage the range and severity of illnesses that presented? How did the facility integrate new staff, casual and agency staff as well as the rapid response team to ensure a smooth transition and productive working teams. How were persons with dementia reassured and managed given the unsettling environment? Number eight, communication. How were family and residents updated? How was this done and by whom? How much resource, staff and time was required? How were families told about the death of a resident and how did other residents react when they learned about multiple deaths occurring? How did the facility manage communication with the authorities, specifically the health department, public health unit, federal government funded rapid response team, aged care commissioner and acute care hospital management? How was communication coordinated? How was communication managed with staff in the workplace, staff who are at home, and staff who are in quarantine? As we can see, 
These questions are just a start to understanding all the issues that did or could arise. The next section presents a short report on what's happening in other countries. It's titled International Experiences in Long-Term Care. The information in this article is taken directly from a report authored by Comas Herrera and colleagues titled Mortality Associated with COVID-19 Outbreaks in Care Homes, Early International Evidence, published on the International Long-Term Care Policy Network website on the 3rd of May, 2020. This group was established in March 2020 and is collating information for community and institution-based long-term care responses to COVID-19. It is hosted by the Care Policy and Evaluation Centre at the London School of Economics and Political Science and draws on the resources of the International Long-Term Care Policy Network. This group have produced a mortality report where there have been at least 100 deaths in total and there is official data from Belgium, Canada, Denmark, France, Germany, Hungary, Ireland, Israel and Norway. Their data shows the proportion of COVID-19-related deaths among care home residents ranges from 19% in Hungary to 62% in Canada. This reinforces the view that residential aged care services cannot afford to be complacent, that a low level of community transmission still poses a very high risk to aged care residents. Let's now listen to the first commentary titled Factors that may contribute to residential aged care services being a high-risk setting for COVID-19 outbreaks. There are many reasons that COVID-19 has impacted so severely on aged care homes throughout the world. Some of the factors are explored in this short article. We begin by looking at the traditional triad used to examine infectious disease. This comprises an external agent, a susceptible host, and an environment that brings the host and agent together. The external agent is COVID-19, which is novel. That is, a new coronavirus, so we have not been exposed to it before, and so there is no pre-existing immunity. It spreads from person to persons and occurs mainly via respiratory droplets and by fomite transmission from surfaces. COVID-19 remains stable in airborne aerosols for at least three hours and can persist on inanimate surfaces for 48 to 72 hours, according to some reports. People with the infection may not have any symptoms and so are harder to detect early. It is more likely to spread from one person to multiple others and causes a wide spectrum of disease, from mild illness to fatal illness. The person is an aged care resident who is an older person with multiple comorbid conditions, including a significant proportion with cognitive impairment. The case fatality rate is highest in older people with multiple comorbidities. The presence of cognitive and physical disability makes it hard to adhere to the fundamental infection control measures of social distancing and hand washing. Therefore, making it slower to be recognised by health professionals. 
Older people are less able to voice concerns if unwell and are less likely to complain. Also, how the illness manifests in older people is different to the general population, contributing to slower or delayed recognition. Assistance with care needs comes with a minimum of three people every day. This contact is close and is usually anything but brief. The environment is the aged care home, which involves shared accommodation and communal spaces. The minimum size bedroom of 14 square metres does not allow for social distancing. To maintain 1.5 metres apart requires you to have an area of 7 square metres. The presence of dual occupancy bedrooms, which may be as many as 30% of accommodation, and shared en-suites, which could be as high as 50%, increases the potential for transmission. Lack of infrastructure to physically separate residents during an outbreak is also of concern. We can see that a large number of people are in a relatively small space. 78 residents, on average, are accommodated in any one facility in Australia. 61 care staff are present to support 78 residents. The Royal Commission reports the national average ratio of direct care workers to operational places was 0.78. This equates to 138 people in a building on any one day and does not include management, healthcare and other support staff or visitors. The physical environment is home-like and not clinical. The design features needed for infection control, such as hand basins, are limited. The Aged Care Quality and Safety Commission, in their October to December 2019 sector report on a combined 183 site and review audits, identified that standards were not met in safe and effective personal and clinical care and safe, clean and well-maintained service environment. The workforce is trained to deliver the personal care that residents need, not the clinical care required in a pandemic with a new virus. National Aged Care Workforce Census and Survey in 2016 reported 53% of residential aged care services had skill shortages, most commonly for registered nurses. Let's now listen to the next commentary titled More than standard techniques are required for prevention of infection. Meticulous adherence to standard precautions, including social distancing, interception of droplet discharge during coughs and sneezes, regular cleaning and disinfection of surfaces, hand hygiene, and the use of personal protective equipment are all essential to controlling spread of COVID-19. Measures can be categorised as occurring at multiple levels, including individual, team, organisation and community level. Within each level, we have approaches dependent on human behaviour and interactions of environmental factors. Next, we have to consider whether the measures are for people with proven COVID-19 or those that are not confirmed. An example of an environmental approach within an organisation is proposed by Lynch and Goring, JAMDA, 2020. 
They suggest drawing on the approach used in hospitals for airborne infection isolation rooms, which are designed to be under a slight negative pressure for residents with COVID-19. A slight negative pressure prevents spread of airborne infection from the room's occupant who has an infection. They suggest five steps to modify rooms that house COVID-19 infected residents to become negative pressure rooms. The steps require expertise in engineering and awareness of the laws and regulations about ventilation, air conditioning, and heating. We have outlined the steps. For the details, please refer to the original article. Step one, estimate total room volume, ventilation, and differential pressure. Step two, install supplemental exhaust ventilation through dedicated exhaust portals. Step three, increase efficiency of filtration. Step four, keep doors to hallways closed. Step five, follow infectious disease prevention guidelines for healthcare workers. Some of the other approaches used internationally to reduce spread of infection in residential aged care services include 1. Reducing occupancy improves capacity to physically isolate residents successfully and to implement zoning or cohorting. 2. Converting hotels and other accommodation into centres for residents who test positive for COVID-19 or transfer residents that are not suspected of having the virus. The basic principle is quarantine. And three, transfer residents with severe infections to hospitals. Let's now listen to this next section, which reflects on the past editions of the residential aged care communiques relevant to COVID-19 pandemic. We have selected only four of the past issues. There are many more that have relevance, but we are aware of the overwhelming volume of information all aged care staff are having to take in these days. Interface between care homes and other services was addressed in the Residential Aged Care Communiques published in February 2008. This edition focuses on common issues created by the interface between facilities and hospitals emergency departments, general practitioners, and community services. It is well established that the multiple interfaces involved in clinical care creates discontinuity and gaps, leading to duplication of services, time-wasting, readmission, additional costs, unsatisfied residents, families, doctors, nurses, managers, and complaints. The care deficits are preventable with better management of interfaces, which requires a systematic approach to ensure consistent, clear systems and planning that achieve facility understanding between the health service providers and the residential aged care facilities. Responsive behaviours in persons with dementia was addressed in the Residential Aged Care Communiques published in June 2014. This edition examines two cases involving the use of medication for residents who have dementia and the associated behavioural and psychological symptoms. Caring for persons with dementia requires a considered holistic approach, empathy, tolerance, and managing risk to self and others.
Being able to do this in the middle of the night with competing demands from other residents is not an easy task, and management has been even more challenging during the COVID-19 pandemic. Communication was addressed in the Residential Aged Care Communiques published in February 2014. This edition addresses communication, something we all recognise as important and in which we pride ourselves on doing well, but for some reason it almost always goes awry. We found many approaches to professional communication, but limited evidence about what is the best approach, reinforcing the view that we should not take good communication for granted. The cases we present are in diverse settings, including the community, emergency department, hospital, and residential aged care service. Guardianship was addressed in the Residential Aged Care Communiques, published in August 2016. This edition focuses on some of the legal aspects of providing care for older people. Specifically, the two cases examine situations involving a guardian or another surrogate decision-maker. The involvement of a third party sometimes overcomplicates an already difficult situation and increases the potential for misunderstandings. At other times, it is a relief to have an objective third party involved who will help to break a deadlock situation or be the much-needed advocate for a vulnerable person. Phil Grano, OAM, is the Principal Legal Officer at the Office of the Public Advocate in Victoria and has written an engaging expert commentary. Let's now listen to the next commentary titled Options for Clinical Settings to Manage Residents Infected with COVID-19. We do not usually present a matter for debate. However, what is rapidly becoming apparent is that the question of where residents infected with COVID-19 should be managed is highly contentious. This is a complex issue and requires considered debate with experts and stakeholders. Decisions that are made must balance the needs and wishes of the individual residents, how that decision could impact on other residents and staff, what is available, and the hazards associated with remaining in place or being transferred. All options should be considered. There are four options for the location in which residents of the residential aged care service infected with COVID-19 could be managed. Within each option, the care could be in a general or a COVID-19 positive only service model. Option one, remain in place at the residential aged care service. Option two, transfer to an inpatient palliative care service. Option three, transfer to an existing or newly established subacute service. And option four, transfer to an acute hospital. Option one, remain in place at the residential aged care service. Four, sheltering in place is a recognized approach and has been promoted as such for other natural disasters such as bushfires. It reduces the risks associated with transferring residents to a new and strange environment. Against. Places other residents and staff at significant and substantial risk. COVID-19 outbreaks in residential aged care services overseas have been profound, with multiple, 
if not the majority of residents affected, as well as staff and visitors. Residential aged care services are not designed to function as an acute care hospital. Option 2. Transfer to an inpatient palliative care service. The high mortality rate, which is repeatedly emphasised, creates a framing bias. That is, we start to consider COVID-19 as a death sentence for every older person. This is not reflective of the disease, as between 60 to 70% could survive the infection. 4. Relocating to a COVID-19-only facility at a palliative care service reduces risks to other residents and staff. Specialised end-of-life care becomes more readily available. Against. The ability to identify residents that would benefit from palliative care is difficult, and there are the logistical issues and stress due to transport and relocation. Also, transfer of COVID-19 infected residents into a palliative care service places all the other patients in that service at an extreme risk of foreshortening their lives. Option 3. Transfer to an existing or newly established subacute service. 4. A subacute service could provide the care that the majority of residents with COVID-19 require, from managing mild to moderate disease and end-of-life care. Against. A subacute service may not be appropriate to treat COVID-19-infected residents who have a moderate to severe disease that have a substantial reversible component to their illness. So, these residents would require another transfer to an acute setting if needed. Also, residents with mild illness may deteriorate due to transfer and the relocation to a strange environment. Note there are additional challenges if the transfer is to a new field hospital, as it is likely to have greater limitations in what types of treatments are available due to infrastructure and environmental limitations. Option 4. Transfer to an acute hospital. 4. Addresses all the potential clinical issues that could arise from a COVID-19 infection for residents. Treatment of those who develop moderate disease could be escalated and lives could be saved. This protects other residents and staff who are not known to be infected. Against. Long-established and known risks of hospitalisation for residents may cause more harm, especially to those with mild illness. The move may be disruptive to residents and especially problematic for those who are dying who may prefer to remain at a residential aged care service. Which of these options would you consider to be the preferred one? Thank you for listening to this podcast episode. Remember the online print versions are available at our website at www.thecommuniques.com which also includes a list of the resources and any references that have been recommended. I'm Joseph Ibrahim. Thanks for listening.